Alright, welcome back everyone. It's Stermit here bringing you a very special discussion between Ruptures, Paul Murphy and Dan Finn. Dan is features editor at Jacobin Magazine, a historian and author of One Man's Terrorist, a political history of the IRA. Dan joins us today to discuss some of the topics covered in the book, as well as his perspectives on the development of the various Republican groups in the 70s and 80s. If you find the conversation interesting, you can find a link to Dan's book in the episode description, along with a link to the podcast Patreon, through which you can support the podcast, which is, of course, majorly appreciated. Alright, so I'll hand us over to Paul and Dan. Okay, uh, thanks a million, Dan Finn, for coming on to Rupture Radio. Uh, Dan is the author of One Man's Terrorist, A Political History of the IRA, which came out, I think, a bit over a year ago. And the plan here is to really delve into some of the issues raised in the book. But before we go there, um, maybe just a little bit about you. Um, I know you from uh, UCD, that revolutionary bastion particularly in the early nineteen, early 2000s and the 60s. I'm not sure if any other periods of time um, where you were active, like me, on the kind of student left. You were in the SODP, part of a split away from that. I think you were then in the ISN, which is not currently uh, around, but is kind of like an orthodox Marxist uh, group. Um, and then... From my point of view, you, you went to Britain and you were then deputy editor of New Left Review and now you've moved over to Jacobin. Do you want to talk a, a little bit about where you are currently and your trajectory that brought you there? Yeah, that's about the essence of it. Um, I did a PhD when I was in my late 20s about the history of the Repu- Republican movements and the troubles in general. And that was around the time when I suppose it was it was for the first time becoming a subject that you could do in the context of academic history, writing about it as history rather than current affairs. And then I went straight from that to working for New Left Review as an editor, which meant moving over to London. I was based there for the best part of 10 years and moved over to work for Jacobin at the start of last year. Uh, so I've been doing that for just over a year now as features editor. And along the way, I turned the material from the PhD and some other research material as well into the basis for for the book, which was One Man's Terrorist. And I mean, it's probably fair to say, but correct me if I'm wrong, that it's, it's effectively like a left-wing history of the IRA and the Republican movement. Um, in a way, you kind of would have thought that someone else would have written it before you. Um, why did you think that... It, like it hadn't, why in your opinion had it not been written? Why did it need to be um, written? Um, and kind of what explains that, um, that nobody had gone and written such a book? Yeah, I'd say it's a left-wing history of the Republican, uh, the Republican movement in a couple of ways, both because I'm coming at it from a socialist perspective, which doesn't mean you couldn't read it as someone who, who doesn't share those politics and get something out of it, but I put my cards on, on the table. And I don't think anyone who writes about this subject in particular comes to it without a political angle of their own. I can place pretty much everyone who's written a book about the history of Sinn Féin or the history of the IRA uh, on the political spectrum, liberal, conservative, socialist or or different varieties of that. Um, It's not like something that happened in the Middle Ages where everyone is still fairly dispassionate about it. 
So it's left wing in that sense, but it's also a history focused on the relationship between left wing politics and the Republican tradition in Irish politics over the last century. So it focuses on the periods from the late 60s, from approximately 1968 onwards, although I did go in in the opening chapter into the backgrounds, going back as far as the United Irishmen and the Fenians and the experience of the National Revolution, people like Connolly, people like Liam Mellows and Patter O'Donnell, and the attempts that were made back then in the 20s and the 30s to combine republicanism with left politics. And then the various attempts that we've seen since the 1960s, where you had the initial attempt by Cahill Goulding and his allies in the IRA leadership in the 60s, who eventually became the official Republicans and in time the Workers' Party. You had Seamus Costello breaking away from the officials to form the Irish Republican Socialist Party and its military wing, the INLA. And then you had Gerry Adams and his allies drawing selectively, but in a real way as well, on left-wing ideas and tactical suggestions from left-wing organisations when they took the reins of the provisional Republican movements from the late 1970s. So one of the arguments that I would have made in the book, and I think this stands up if you look carefully at the history of the movement from the 60s through to the present day, is that the interest of those attempts to combine left politics and republicanism, it's not just something that someone on the left, someone with left-wing socialist politics might be interested in for their own reasons. It's very important for understanding the history of the movement because those attempts to combine the two traditions have given rise to some of the most important and some of the most influential developments in the history of republicanism. So just sticking with the period from the 1960s, the initial experiment by Goulding and Sean Garland and Liam McMillan and people like that to bring the movement down a new path towards greater political engagement and activism was crucial in the genesis of the civil rights movement that partly arose from a Republican initiative from the Wolf Tone societies and it included intellectual input from people like Roy Johnston and Anthony Coughlin. And of course it was the protests in 68 and 69 that brought the crisis of the state in Northern Ireland to a head and it led to the violent clashes in August 1969 in Derry and in Belfast and to the arrival of the British Army But there are two subsequent episodes that were crucial in the history of the Troubles and the history of the Republican movement that might not be so well understood. I think the moments themselves are well understood, but the influence of the left perhaps isn't so well understood. There was the moment from the summer of 1971 until the summer of 1972 when you had what was known at the time as the movement of civil resistance in opposition to British government policy, which was to prop up the Stormont system with escalating repression, beginning with the imposition of internment without trial in the summer of 1971 and carrying on through the Ballymurphy massacre, which came just after uh, the imposition of internment and into the Bloody Sunday massacre, of course, which everyone recognises was a hinge moment in the history of the Republican movement and in the history of the Troubles. What's not so well understood, I think, is the fact that Bloody Sunday happened because there was a deliberate attempt by left-wing socialist and left-republican political forces 
spanning different organisations and individuals to give that campaign, the civil resistance, a political thrust. There was already a campaign of boycott of the political institutions. There was already a boycott of rent and rates by council tenants. You had the no-go areas in Derry and Belfast and other areas where the British Army couldn't go in. And that wasn't just because of the threat from the two IRA factions. It was also because people in those communities were you know, coming out in the streets to challenge them. And there was an attempt at the end of 1971 and the beginning of 1972 to give that greater political direction and thrust by organising street protests in a return to the tactics of the civil rights movement, which of course posed a direct challenge to the British government and to the unionist government of Brian Faulkner. And it was the march in Derry, which was the biggest of those marches to date, when uh, the British army sent in the paratroopers and it led to the Bloody Sunday massacre. So that was an absolutely crucial moment and it happened in the way that it happened because of that intervention from the left and that cross-fertilisation, if you like, between left-wing and Republican currents. And then the third moment was the hunger strikes of 1980 and 1981, which again are widely recognised as being absolutely pivotal, led to the emergence of Sinn Féin as a viable political party alongside the IRA. What's perhaps not so well known is the fact that the whole idea of having a broad campaign in support of the prisoners was an initiative that came from the left. It came from rather small groups on the left that would have been derided by the provosts very often as microgroups, irrelevant sectarian grouplets who clearly didn't have the same kind of activist base and, and social impact as the provosts themselves. But they're the ones who said that there should be a broad campaign in support of the prisoners in the H-blocks at a time when the line of the provosts was very much to say, we do this by ourselves ourselves alone in organisational terms you have to you have to support the armed struggle of the IRA unconditionally if you want to work with us and it was the left groups that were involved at that time who said you won't get anywhere with this kind of condition in the jargon of the Marxist left they, they said you need to have a united front campaign and it was because of that initiative that they were able to have the mass protests of 1980 and especially 1981 now what came out of that wasn't necessarily planned by anyone, including Sinn Féin and the Bravos themselves, but it certainly had a lasting, um, immeasurable impact on the whole history of the movement and the whole history of the Troubles. And it came about again because that overlap between left politics and Republican politics. And to take that, that example of the hunger strikes, um, because, I mean, when you read not, not just your book, but any history of that, it's clear that the provost kind of stumbled into electoral politics and the hunger strikes were a big part of that and were kind of pushed along, not in terms of the hunger strike tactic, but in terms of the United Front, the H-Block committees, the mass kind of movement, stuff that happened around that, um, that the left played a crucial role in that. Um, I mean, some of the kind of critiques of your, I've seen two kind of, well, they're not necessarily counterposed critiques, but they're different critiques. One critique says, yeah, okay, um, uh, fair enough. On, at these particular moments, a particular time, um, say in terms of the civil rights movement, in terms of the, the Bloody Sunday march, in terms of the, the, the initiative of the United Front around the um, hunger strikes, okay, fine, 
the revolutionary socialists um, or people influenced by revolutionary socialism, like People's Democracy, Amy McCann, um, the Derry Young Socialists, these people played a role. Um, but I've seen a critique that says, kind of, you're hamming it up. You're hamming up the role that those people play um, because that's your kind of political bent to some degree or another. Um, so how, how do you respond to that on the one hand? And then I've seen not, not quite an opposite criticism, but a criticism that says um, you don't pay enough attention to the labour movement and the role of the labour movement, the trade union movement, for example, you know, at various moments, strikes, protests organised by the trade unions against sectarian killings and things like that, and the role that they played in terms of a, a peace process. Okay, with the first point... I think every narrative that you write about the history of the Troubles and about the history of the Republican movements is going to be selective and it's going to involve emphasising some points more than others. And that doesn't make it false. It's it's just one way of looking at the evidence. And so my approach in that respect was to focus on an aspect of the story that I don't think had been appreciated enough you mentioned earlier the question of whether another history of the, the Republican movement as it related to the left had been written. There was a book of that kind written by Henry Patterson uh, in the late 1980s called The Politics of Illusion. He had a second edition in the mid-90s. Now, apart from the fact that even the second edition of that came out in 1997, so obviously a lot of things have happened since then. A lot of material has come into the public domain. A lot of new work has been published. So there was a justification for, for a new book on those grounds alone. Henry Patterson would have approached that as the title would suggest with the assumption that the politics of illusion means any attempt to marry republicanism and left politics was fundamentally an illusion. It was self-defeating. The two ideolo- ideologies were incompatible. And I wouldn't be so categorical about that myself. I, I think the the role of people like People's Democracy and the role of individuals like Bernadette McCalliskey in that period in the 1970s was there. It, it was it was perceived at the time, but had been left out of the historical record to to a large extent. One one concept that I found quite useful was one that was widely used in the 70s by people from that kind of milieu when they talked about the anti-imperialist movement as something that was broader than the provosts themselves. It might be helpful to think about it by analogy with the Palestinian movement, where you have the PLO as an umbrella organisation, and obviously Fatah within that is by far the most important group, um, to the extent that people often talk about Fatah being synonymous with the PLO. But you did have smaller left-wing currents like the PFLP and, and the DFLP. And they weren't really influential in their own right, but they could be influential in suggesting ideas and initiatives that were taken up by wider groups and that would be my my argument that particularly with a group like PD for example it didn't have the strength it didn't have the punching power to change the political context on its own um the the one exception to that is the one instant that is always credited to PD the march um from Belfast to Derry at the beginning of 1969 which is sometimes presented as the, as the point of no return that led to the outbreak of conflict, what was possible for groups like PD and individuals like Bernadette McCallisky was to put forward ideas that were taken up by wider forces. You know, there were successive attempts to have broad fronts like the Northern Resistance Movement in the early 70s and then the H-Block Movement in the late 70s. 
and they did have a have a have a crucial impact. But in a sense, the impact that they had at that time was dependent on the provosts abstaining from political activity for the most part, because it meant there was a vacuum. And there's a point that was made about this by Jim Gibney, who, as you know, I'm sure is is still to this day very influential figure in the Sinn Féin leadership and has been a close ally of Jerry Adams going back to the late 1970s. And Gibney is the one who probably would have had the strongest influence from from that political milieu. The, the Marxists uh, would have been very much influenced by arguments coming from groups like PD. But he made a point, looking back on it, that figures like Bernadette Michalski and, and Michael Farrell from PD as well had played the role of being a kind of stand-in Republican political leadership in the 70s, but that this led to pressure from within the IRA that it should be our movement that has its own political leadership and we should be representing ourselves instead of relying on other people. Kind of outsourcing it to these people, like, yeah. Yeah, and and, and it's not necessarily a question of being hostile to them, uh, because if, if you speak to people from both Sinn Féin and the IRA, they did have great respect and still do have great respect for individuals like Michalski and, and Michael Farrell. Um, but the organisational culture of the movement was very, you know, quite centralised, quite disciplined, in some ways to this day is quite disciplined. So there was a sense that people like Michalski, for example, was a bit of a maverick or a loose cannon who wasn't subjected to the discipline of the Republican movement. So, for example, when she ran in the European elections in 1979, on a platform supporting the the H block um, prisoners, not only did Sinn Fein not support her, but they actively campaigned against her. You know, there was the famous incident of she was campaigning in Derry, and Martin McGuinness followed her around the bogside with a megaphone, telling people not to vote for, her, um, which was you know a clear example of sectarianism in in the political sense rather than the religious sense. Um, so there was that influence there, but at the same time, you know, it was always filtered. And the influence that people like Adams brought in from the radical left, it was carefully selected and filtered in line with their own their own thinking. Um, they would borrow the ideas and the tactics that they considered useful, but they wouldn't borrow anything wholesale in a sense. In, in relation to Bernadette Michalski, I mean, and, and this might be reflective of that broader kind of people's democracy themselves and the milieu and that kind of this interaction between that section of the left and the Republican movement. Um, is there a certain, without being at all patronising or kind of taken away from the contribution, but a certain naivety in terms of their relationship with the Republican movement? In a sense, like ultimately this thing is this very centralised, disciplined machine with a very definite ideology and strategy themselves that has an interest in doing this stuff only insofar as they're pushed to do so and it works for their own ends. And in a way, is this kind of encapsulated by... Like, it's it's an interesting... It's a really interesting part of the book is obviously Bernadette McAllister is part of the founding of the Irish Republican Socialist Party and then kind of quickly enough realises that, like, this political party has another thing, which is the Irish National Liberation Army and actually that thing over there is the thing that is causing calling all the shots and she's like a political front person in a way to be used by them. I'm, I'm not taken away from Seamus Costello's, you know, kind of genuineness, like Jenny, Seamus Costello was a Republican socialist. He meant it, but like 
she gets involved in this project and then quick enough she's gone from something that like in hindsight yeah like it's pretty obvious that these people were going to have a military wing and the military dynamic was going to be crucial and like any objective assessment of Seamus Costello's politics would have included an understanding that like yeah this guy you know while he's into like community campaigning and Bray and so on he's also into like having an armed wing yeah I mean it was one of the the ways in which it was hard to have that debate in the open because it's the nature of a clandestine armed organization that you can't talk about what it does and what you do with it as freely as um, as you might want to. So Costello at that time hadn't announced the existence of the INLA. I mean, we know from accounts that appeared subsequently that the INLA was set up at exactly the same time as the IRSP at more or less the same place and venue with most of the same people involved in the leadership. But Costello's plan was that you would wait until the INLA had carried out a number of attacks on British forces in the north and then you would announce its public existence. But instead they became embroiled in this feud with the officials in Belfast in particular, which got out of hand very quickly. And that was what brought to a head the the difference of opinion between not just Michalski, because it's interesting to look at how that debate broke down it's interesting also to look at the, the IRSP as a whole that because of what happened subsequently that by the end of the 1970s clearly the IRSP had more or less withered on the vine. The last hurrah, so to speak, of, of the IRSP as a political force in its own right was running council election candidates in in Belfast during the hunger strikes. But for the most part it hadn't made an impact on the political scene and it was the INLA alone that was carrying the weight of the movement and becoming increasingly unstable as you got into the 1980s. But when the IRSP was launched, there was a real fear on the part of British officials, people at the Northern Ireland office, that this would become the major force, the major Republican faction, more so than the provosts and the officials. There was an assessment of it written by someone at the NIO saying that the IRSP had more potential because it was a combination of nationalism and socialism, uh, which from countries in Africa and Asia you could see was an especially potent combination, whereas the officials were being purely socialist and the provosts were being purely nationalist and, and they wouldn't have the same potential. So people like Bernadette Michalski got involved and then others from the Marxist left got involved and, and others contemplated getting involved, groups like PD and the socialist workers movement but you also had people from Derry who had been with the officials and left at the same time as Costello but were broadly speaking part of that same milieu as, as the likes of Bernadette Michalski and M. McCann and, and PD and so on they would have been involved in, in the Derry Housing Action Committee in the late 60s and the early 70s people like Johnny White and Terry Robson and they would have also agreed with uh, Bernadette Michalski when the question came to a head towards the end of 75 in the IRSP about the relationship with the INLA. They resigned from the Art Corla of the IRSP along with her. So in a way it wasn't just a question of someone like Bernadette Michalski who was coming to 
the movement from outside uh, the Republican tradition who had never been involved in any version of the IRA. You also would have had people who were active in the official IRA or in the old IRA before the split who agreed with her on that. But ultimately, you know, that view she was trying to put across the traditional Leninist view in a way that the relationship between a political party and an armed wing um, that the armed wing should be subordinate to the political leadership and the political leadership should be one and the same thing which is a relationship you you had effectively with the uh, the movement in South Africa for example not just communist movement but the, the ANC there as well uh, but because of the way the Republican movements had developed over the course of the 20th century you had the, the two separate organisations Sinn Féin and the IRA with different leadership teams even if the leadership teams actually consisted of the same people but they didn't form part of the Sinn Féin leadership in the same capacity as they formed part of the Army Council of the IRA. So the experience showed that in order to establish that kind of supremacy of the political side of the movement over the military side of the movement what you needed to have were people who had credibility with the IRA, whether it was the official IRA or the provisional IRA, they had the standing from having been involved in the activism of the IRA and involved in planning attacks and involved in carrying out attacks themselves. So for the officials, that role was played by people like Carl Goulding and Sean Garland and Liam McMillan in Belfast. And it was because of them that they were able to guide the official IRA towards a ceasefire and towards the gradual politicisation of the movement and then it became an exclusively political movement in its public manifestation anyway through Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party, which became the Workers' Party. And a similar dynamic happened with Sinn Féin where it was you know, not a separate Sinn Féin leadership that had nothing to do with the IRA that steered through the politicisation of the movement. It was Gerry Adams, it was Mark McGuinness, it was Danny Morrison, it was Pat Doherty and subsequent figures like Jerry Kelly uh, and Martin Meehan and Martin Ferris and others. It was the people who had that kind of standing with the IRA membership from their involvement in the movement who were able to, to steer it through. And it is something that's quite peculiar to Irish republicanism, this divide between soldiers and politicians, as they're known. And in the kind of jargon of the republican movement, soldiers and politicians doesn't mean people in the IRA on the one hand, people in Sinn Féin on the other hand, because the people who are referred to as politicians very often had that record of being involved in the IRA. The soldiers are the people who are only interested in the activity of the IRA and see politics as, you know, at worst something kind of dirty and treacherous and disreputable and at best as something that they let other people get on with, but they have no interest in it themselves. I was going to bring us back in time, back to the split in the IRA which is an important point but before we, we do that maybe just seeing as I seeing as I put the criticism to you I, I just let you respond the other criticism that like you don't deal enough with the organized workers movement and um, their imprint uh, at this period yeah I mean it is a question of focus whether you're writing a history of the Republican movement in particular and the left insofar as it comes into that picture or whether you're writing a general history of socialist organisations and labour politics and trade union politics in the North, if you're writing a broader history of the left in its various forms since the 1960s, you'd have to talk about organisations 
like the Northern Ireland Labour Party, like the Communist Party, uh, the Workers' Party, as it became in the post-Republican sense. And you'd have to talk about the trade unions and the influence of the left in the trade unions and the various smaller Marxist groups as well. But I would say on the point about worker struggles and class conflicts, in the past, as you know, there have been major episodes of class conflict in the North before partition and after partition. So it wasn't that there was a kind of permanent barrier that made it impossible to have that kind of cross-community, pan-sectarian workers' action. You had the famous dock strike led by Jim Larkin and his allies before the First World War. You had the engineering workers' strike after the war. You had the unemployed workers' movement during the Depression. You had a big strike wave in the shipyards during the Second World War. But from the late 60s on, you didn't really have any equivalent to that. There were strikes. There was industrial action. And there were attempts by the trade unions to direct industrial action against sectarianism and against uh, against violence and so on. But you didn't have an equivalent in modern times in the 70s, 80s, 90s of the dock worker strike or the engineering worker strike. It didn't reach those kind of high points. And in a way, this is not something that's peculiar to the North, where from the 70s onwards, as you know, there's a major pushback against the power of organised labour right across Europe and North America. Um, in the rest of the UK, the early 70s to the early 80s were a period that saw a lot of strikes, including some very combative, political, politically oriented strikes. But then you have the miners' strike in 84, 85, when the miners are absolutely clobbered and the train union movement in general is clobbered by Thatcher and the anti-union laws. And since then, we haven't seen anything like the kind of militancy and class struggle in the workplace that you saw in that period of the 60s, 70s, into the early 80s, even in countries like Italy or in France. Strikes, when they happen, they're, they're less likely to happen, first of all. They tend to be shorter. Uh, they t- tend to involve fewer people. In Britain, for example, in the last 10 years, strike rates have been at historic lows, some of the lowest figures since records began. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there hasn't been class conflict in those periods, but then this leads you back to the kind of particular circumstances in the North where class conflict very often is something that has happened in communities rather than in the workplace, um, not just in, in Europe, also in Latin America. Some of those big struggles like in um, in Bolivia or Venezuela or Argentina or places like that, and certainly struggles that we've seen in Ireland, like the water charges movement. It was a question of mobilising people in their communities rather than mobilising them in the workplace. The movement of the squares in Greece, the Indignados in Spain. And what that causes a problem for in, in Northern Ireland, of course, is the fact that communities are segregated. So it, it's difficult to talk about uniting people across the class divide when you know, or across the sectarian divide, rather, when that sectarian divide has a very real physical manifestation. Um, I mean, there's also the issue that was an issue in, in the 70s and, and the early 80s. It's perhaps not, not so much today, but a lot of the workplaces in the north that were, you know, in the best strategic position uh, for industrial action 
um, you know, compared them with, with other countries where you saw a lot of militant um, industrial action, they tended to be very segregated. You know, famously, the shipyards, um, engineering works and so on in Belfast, uh, the power workers at Ballylumford who ended up kind of delivering the coup de grace to Brian Faulkner's power sharing government in 1974. That was an almost exclusively Protestant workforce. And of course, there's you know a long history behind that. There's there's direct exclusion of Catholic work, workers, and then there's more informal mechanisms that reproduce that, where people are taken on through friends and relatives and and people in the neighbourhood. Um, but that means that you know the idea that you you sometimes had from people on the left that the trade union movement should mobilise against internment, for example, in 1971 or um, or around other other objectives. It was it was going to be very difficult to pull off because you would be going right up against the the political ideas of a large part of of your workforce, and so you know for example there was there was often a tendency to criticise some of the shop stewards in the unions who who came from a communist party background for being overly cautious, um, and perhaps they were overly cautious in in some respects, but they did have a very real um, concern that trying to bring up any sort of more overtly political agenda would split their movement down the middle. So, you know, in the, in the early 80s, there was an attempt by the movement in support of the H-blocks to organise trade union, um, I think it was called Trade Union Campaign Against Repression. But they were re- only really able to organise action in, in a f- fairly small number of workplaces where there was a predominantly nationalist workforce. So, you know, the... That whole story, I mean, it's very important in its own right um, for anyone who's interested in in working class politics and class politics. Um, But I would say in terms of the broader picture of the troubles of the 70s, 80s, 90s, unfortunately, it didn't intrude in the way that it did in the earlier decades of the 20th century. Okay, let's let's go back to the the split in the IRA, which is obviously a, you know, crucial point in terms of your book and the focus of your book, which is really from the point of the split onwards and in relation to the split you write that their new movement referring to the provisional ira had strong roots in the austere republican orthodoxy that had taken shape after the defeats of the 1920s it was the interaction between that orthodoxy and conditions in the northern catholic ghettos that created the provost not the machinations of fianna fall um there's a lot in there um, so can you can you un- pack that for us about like kind of this complicated process that explains the split and the different factors that lie behind the split between the official IRA which goes on to become the Workers Party and the provisional IRA which goes on to become the Sinn Féin that we have uh, today. Yeah a lot of what happens from 69 onwards you can only really make sense of it by looking at what happened to the Republican movement from the late 20s when that was the point when, when De Valera and his allies broke away to form Fianna Fáil. That was the point when the IRA and Sinn Féin were decisively pushed to the margins of political life. And they remained, for for the most part, on the margins of political life in Ireland, north and south, for the next 40 or 45 years. And the tradition was really kept alive by small circles of people. In the north, very often it was a family tradition. You had these families like the Adams family, for example, uh, and various other people in in Belfast who kept the movement together, 
they put weapons aside they kept some kind of basic organizational skeleton there and it didn't die out even though it went through some very lean years particularly in the 1940s but there was always a few people who were keeping it keeping it together keeping it alive and were willing to pass on the baton to to a new generation of activists and so during those lean years what took shape was a particular idea of what it meant to be a republican and i would say as much as formal ideology there was also a kind of mindset involved which was something that i referred to earlier this divide between soldiers and politicians there was an idea that what had gone wrong in 1921 was that the politicians had got involved that the ira had fought the british empire to a standstill and then these tricksy politicians sold it out for you know a sellout free state arrangement and what you needed to do if you got back to the second second round and you got back to the position of strength that you enjoyed in 1921 was to keep it in the hands of the soldiers and to avoid getting your hands dirty with politics and that was a, a pretty widespread attitude i would say and it was rein- reinforced by the fact that you had later generations of people um, breaking away well first of all de Valeri breaking away but then sean mcbride breaking away and forming clan publica and eventually you know people like Carl Goulding and and Sean Garland being seen as as having broken away from the true path as well. So, you know, I I would say this is based on a misleading understanding of of the National Revolution, of what was happening, particularly the factor in politics, that it wouldn't have been possible to get to the point that the movement was in by 1921 without various forms of political engagement, not just the Sinn Féin election campaign in 1918, uh, but also the Republican courts that they set up, the parallel government, um, various forms of industrial action by the labour movements, general strikes and, and so on. So without that pressure, um, it wasn't just the campaign of the IRA. Certainly the guerrilla warfare of the IRA in 1920 and 21 had a crucial impact, but it wasn't the only thing that had an impact. But that was really glossed over uh, by people who had this kind of mindset. So that fed into the split with the officials. There was a general distrust of the idea of getting involved in politics. There was a feeling that getting involved in politics would necessarily bring them away from um, the true mission of the IRA. And then you had more particular disagreements where you had someone like Rory O'Brody, for example, who, in contrast with some of his political allies with whom he formed the provost, he didn't have a problem with the idea of political engagement or taking part in elections or anything like that. And going on into the 1970s, he tended to be the only figure in the provisional leadership who was actually arguing that Sinn Féin should run in elections. But what was crucial to him was the abstentionist policy, um, which is another thing that really took root from the 1920s on, this idea that you cannot have any truck with the institutions that were set up under the treaty whether that's Westminster still exercising jurisdiction over the North or Stormont in Northern Ireland or Leinster House in the South. You can't have anything to do with them. And it is tied up with this almost theological sense of legitimacy that is passed on from the last surviving members of the Second Dáil of the 1920s. And so for someone like O'Brody, that was a non-negotiable principle. And he confirmed that in 1986 when he broke with the provost 
although as he would put it they broke with him you know that's the that's the understanding of Republican Sinn Féin to this day that they're not a splinter group everyone else is the splinter group they're the ones who've kept the you know the legal tradition of continuity going hence the name continuity IRA um so there there were people like that who were crucially involved in in the the core team that set up the provosts people who were veterans of of the movement going back to the 1940s and the 1950s and then you also had people like Jerry Adams who became such a pivotal figure because he was able to bridge the gap between two generations you had those people the the generation of the 40s and the 50s but then you had the people who were known as the 69ers who joined up in or afterwards because of the violence in 1969. They were often people who were teenagers. Their first experience of political activity was going on one of the civil rights marches and seeing people being baton charged by the RUC. And so they they went into the movement and, and many of them would say this happily themselves without any kind of worked out political ideology. They went in with a sense that the state was oppressive and the state had sent in the British Army and the British Army had beaten them up and gunned down people on their streets and they were fighting back and they were fighting to protect their communities. And it was only at a later stage, often when they were in prison or in internment camps, that they developed a more worked out sense of what they were fighting for and, and what their politics was. But Adams was was in between those generations. He was closer in age to the the young recruits. He was only in, in, in his early 20s, 23 or 24 but it was that kind of time where just two or three years of political experience would make a huge difference you know Adams was only two years older than Martin McGuinness for example at the time but in terms of experience it meant he had been active in the Republican movement in Belfast since the mid 60s because of his family backgrounds he could get along with and communicate with and, and make himself trusted by the older generation as well so Adams went into the movement with a very firm commitment to the idea that you needed to have an armed campaign against British rule in the north and that was his main reason for breaking with the officials but he wasn't so hostile to the idea of political engagement and he wasn't really hostile to what Goulding had been doing in the late 60s. If you read his memoir and and some of his other books he talks about that period with with a lot of enthusiasm. He talks about working with people like Joe McCann and and Liam McMillan and Jim Sullivan and, and really reading between the lines and, and not even reading between the lines very carefully um, Adams didn't care that much about the abstention policy it wasn't the kind of shibboleth for him um, that it was for someone like O'Brody so the fact that the provosts had had that um, that kind of mindset among many many of their leaders and that kind of ideological baggage going into the 1970s it did have a big impact on them. For example, the, the fact that they only got around to to ditching the abstention policy in 1986 when clearly people like Adams would have been happy to, to do without it much sooner. And the price that they paid for ditching the abstention policy to keep the IRA on board was to sanction an escalation of the IRA campaign in the late 1980s, which is what a lot of IRA members wanted. But it was clearly cutting against the idea of growing Sinn Féin as a political force, which was the whole point of ditching the abstentionist policy in the first place. Um, I mean, going back a bit a bit further, you could say that that mentality of looking back on 1921 as the missed opportunity when the politicians had taken it away from the soldiers 
that fed into the negotiations that the provost had with the British government in 1972 when they had the truce and they actually sat down uh, across the table from William Whitelaw from the Heath government and there was a delegation including Adams, including McGuinness and Ira Bell but headed by Sean McStephon and at that moment in 72 the, the Republican movement was certainly uh, at a peak it hadn't known since 1921. It hadn't known that kind of political support and influence and the capacity to carry out attacks but also the capacity to influence the whole political stage and you could say in a way that figures like McStephon let it go to their head you know they um, there's an account that Adams has in his memoir that they held their initial talks with William Whitelaw and broke away so the British delegation went off to talk among themselves and the provisional delegation went off to talk among themselves and according to Adams McStephon turned to them all and said Jesus we have it in other words you know we have victory in our grasp we just have to make sure that we don't compromise this time and we don't settle for something that falls short of our full objective which was really based on a misreading of the position of the British government that the British government at that time was not willing to pull out they weren't willing to give what McStephon was looking for which was the uh, as the provost called it, the, the de- declaration of intent to withdraw. Um, they weren't willing to set a timetable. And so, you know, the provosts were in this position then where if they didn't go back to war, um, the initiative would gradually drain away from them um, to political forces that had, you know, uh, the capacity to do something other than armed struggle, perhaps the SDLP, perhaps other forces. But if and when they did go back to war, they also found themselves politically isolated because it was one thing to be waging the kind of campaign they had in the latter months of 1971, the beginning of 72, when they um, they were going up against the Stormont system, but now direct rule had been imposed, the British government was putting out feelers for a reform initiative. So there was a sense among a lot of nationalists that there was a new political environment and you should give it a try and and see how far this could go so the decision of the provost to go back to full-scale armed struggle in summer 1972 was quite unpopular and it isolated them and in a way you could see uh, Kevin Bean makes this point in, in a very good history of Sinn Féin the new politics of Sinn Féin that you could see the whole history of the movement from that point on as an attempt to recapture the momentum uh, and the energy that they had in the early months of 1972, which which they never quite managed to do. I mean, in, in a way, isn't that kind of the tragedy of the IRA in, in the sense of, you know, you've these idealistic, driven, predominantly young people who want to struggle against imperialism, want to struggle against oppression. But like the whole foundation of the strategy is based on the idea that it's a military question that like militarily and economically you can make it not worth the while of British imperialism and you can therefore drive them out. And like it, it it's a false premise um, because it kind of just ignores the Protestants. Um, and, you know, these people who have an identity with the British state, um, certainly at that point in time, and like are a real factor um, where like, you get the sense that the officials and the workers' party, like, they don't go about it very well. And I think that's they're really hemmed in with the whole kind of stages theory. They have they both have, like, their own approach to the stages theory in a different way. Um, 
but the officials at least at a certain point have the like benefit of recognizing like that you can't just ignore this like 900,000 Protestants or a million Protestants that you need to engage with them, you have to persuade them, etc., etc. Whereas like the provisions are more kind of bluntly militaristic and like ultimately in terms of Sinn Féin going from where they went then to where they are now, that did involve like an acceptance ultimately, for example, of like the principle of unionist consent. Um, you know, right now it's the Republican thing to demand a border poll, but like 20, 30 years ago, the idea that you'd have a border poll in the North, whereby you accept that a majority of people in the North can say that they're going to continue to be part, would, would just have been anathema and completely like anti-Republican. Um, so do, do you agree that like like fundamentally it was based on an entirely false premise? Um, or do you think kind of like they had to go along with some of that like illusory stuff to kind of motivate people, motivate the ranks and that like firm for at least a certain point in time, Adams had an idea of where he was going in terms of the, the Good Friday Agreement and so on. Yeah, I mean, the question of how they relate and how they perceive the unionist community is is really important. And in a sense, it's a practical question, even if you set aside the political or ethical question, whether you think there should be a united Ireland over the heads of the unionist community or not. The kind of campaign that the IRA was trying to fight from the early 1970s was always going to hit a brick wall because of the fact that, as we see from all over the world, a guerrilla army, its great weapon is always having popular support because in almost every case they're outmanned, outarmed, out-resourced in every conceivable way by the conventional army that they're fighting against but the secret weapon that they have is having support from the population um, and, and that's what allows them to carry on whereas in the north the provost had support or sympathy from a large minority of nationalists they didn't have support from uh, the whole of the nationalist community except perhaps at a, at a quite brief point at the the end of 1971 and the beginning of 1972 But for the most part, they were supported by a significant minority. If you take the Sinn Féin vote from the early 1980s as a rough proxy for how many people were sympathetic to the IRA campaign, people voting for Sinn Féin doesn't necessarily mean they give wholehearted support to the IRA, but at the very least it means they're they're voting for a candidate who gives unconditional support to the IRA and, and they know that their vote will be seen as indicating support or sympathy or toleration for the Republican movements. So between 35 and 40% of the nationalist community would regularly turn up to vote for Sinn Féin when it had that policy. But at the same time, you have the unionist community, which accounts for somewhere between 50 and 60% of the population throughout the Troubles, and they're bitterly hostile to the IRA. And so that changes the whole calculus for guerrilla warfare, because... If you compare it with the War of Independence, the IRA in 1919 started off attacking members of the RIC. And the RIC, because it was recruited from the population in in Leinster and Munster and Connacht, the vast majority of RIC members came from a Catholic nationalist background. They might not be very political or very militant nationalists, but they came from that cultural background. And so as well as the direct attacks on them by the IRA, Probably more important was the communal pressure, where it's one thing to be an IRAC member at a time when nationalism is quite, you know, constitutional, law-abiding, represented by the Irish Parliamentary Party. 
it's a different thing to be an RIC member when the whole population is supporting an insurgency against the state and um, voting for a party that's been uh, declared an, out, an outlaw party, outlaw parliament. So the RIC effectively melted away in quite a short space of time. And that was why you had the reliance by the British state on forces like the Black and Tans and the auxiliaries coming in. So the IRA soon enough ended up fighting the kind of war that it wanted to be fighting against a foreign army of occupation. Whereas the path in the 70s and 80s was precisely the opposite. You start off in the early 70s with the British army in the front line against the IRA. And that's the kind of war war that the provost wanted to be fighting. They wanted to be um, attacking British soldiers. Uh, They didn't want to be engaged in a struggle against the the unionist community. Um, But after reaching that peak in, in 1972, where they killed the largest number of British soldiers in the whole of the conflict. Their ability to hit the British army itself went down. And then from the mid 70s, coming into the late 70s, you have the policy of ulcerisation, as the provosts themselves called it, by the British government, because British governments, both Labour and Conservatives, realised that it would be politically expedient to put the RUC and the Ulster Defence Regiment in the front line against the IRA. And that had several advantages for them. It, it facilitated this idea that they were trying to promote that this wasn't a war at all, that it was actually just a kind of aggravated crime wave, that they were up against criminal godfathers who just liked violence for its own sake. And it also meant that the burden of the conflict, the burden of the casualties were being absorbed by the unionist population. That, that's the thing. I mean, if, even if you take out the kind of blatantly sectarian attacks like Kingsmill and you just deal with the ones that they would have treated as legitimate targets, it has to be experienced by the Protestant Unionist community as an attack on their community, even if, strictly speaking, the person from their community is in a uniform. But, like, that doesn't make much difference to the community, does it? Yeah, if if you think about the goal of guerrilla warfare is to demoralise your opponents and, and weaken their will to fight classic example of that would be uh, the NLF in Vietnam killing American soldiers because they come from communities in the US where before the war most people never even heard of Vietnam. They still might not have been able to find it on a map. They had no idea where their sons and their brothers were all fighting this war on the other side of the world. Uh, They had no investment in what happened in Vietnam. And when they saw people coming home in body bags and coming home in coffins, they were putting pressure on the president and putting pressure on their congressman uh, to get this war finished with as soon as possible. And that might have been the case if the number of people that the, the provosts were killing were you know, soldiers from, from Glasgow and from London and from Birmingham, from, from Coventry and from Manchester, whose families didn't really care about Ireland either and didn't care about what happened there and just wanted their sons and their brothers to be safe. But from that point on, from the late 1970s on and, and all through the 1980s and into the early 90s, the people that they were targeting tended to be members of the RUC and the UDR. So it did not reduce the desire of their their families and their friends and, and their relatives and, and people from their communities to oppose the IRA and to defend the Union at all. If anything, it made them more intransigent because if the British state was to withdraw from Northern Ireland, they would still be there. They'd still be living in Belfast or in Tyrone or in Fermanagh. And if they thought it was necessary to fight against the IRA, it's better to fight against the IRA with the British state and the British army on your side than to 
fight against them on your own. Um, so that was the dynamic all through the, the 80s and you know the, the casualties that were being taken by the British Army gradually declined. There were several years in the 1980s when their casualties were in single figures. There was a brief uptick in the late 1980s when, when the Provost had uh, a new stock of weapons coming in from Libya where they managed to inflict more damage on the on the British Army but not enough to um, to force them to think about withdrawal. And interestingly, the the early 90s, which was also the period when the Adams leadership were clearly trying to move away from the IRA campaign and, and trying to move towards some kind of peace process. It was also the time when the IRA thought they might have stumbled across a secret weapon that could actually inflict enough damage on, on the British state and, and the British political class to make them think about withdrawal. And that was their tactic of bombings in London, uh, because you had had all these bombings going on in the north for two decades. And the rationale behind them was that if you blew up commercial premises and blew up town centres, then the British government would have to pay out compensation and that would reduce their will to stay there. And that never happened and it was never likely to happen because the amount that they were paying out in compensation was was less than they would have been spending on the British armed forces there anyway. Um, But all of a sudden you have these bombs in London's financial centre in the early 90s that cause more damage in one day, in one afternoon than all the bombings in the North put together over the space of 20 years. And there was a sense on the part of some IRA members that this this could be the secret weapon, the secret tactic. But clearly the Adams leadership didn't go along with that view. And I think they were right not to go along with that view because, again, it goes back to the kind of delusion of militarism that you can find. You find this with armies in general, whether it's a conventional army or a guerrilla army, that they're always looking for one weapon, one tactic that's going to knock their opponent out. And you can see that the, um, you know, the most likely outcome, if the provost had carried on planting huge bombs in the centre of London in the early 90s and into the mid 90s, eventually one of them would have gone wrong. There would have been some kind of either bad luck or a technical mistake. Yeah, and you would have killed 20, 30, 40 people easily. I mean, you think about the Bishopsgate bomb, for example, that was uh, approximately one tonne of homemade explosive, um, which they planted in um, in the city of London area where I would have gone through a lot. And they did take uh, a lot of care to, uh, to minimise the risk of civilians being killed. But eventually your luck is going to run out. Um, and so... We saw this on even a smaller scale with at the same time as they were planting those bombs in in London, the financial quarter, there were also more scattered bombing attempts in in Britain. And you had Warrington, of course, where they planted a bomb in a provincial shopping centre and and killed two kids. And there was a huge backlash against that Um, protests in in Dublin against the provost. and, And they still have to answer for it to this day. So you can imagine the kind of political backlash they might have faced if instead of killing two people, they killed 20 or 25 people. Um, it was something that was warned actually at the time by Mary Holland, um, who, as you, as you might remember, was one of the few journalists in the Irish media at that time who was sympathetic to Sinn Féin, not in the sense that she was sympathetic to the IRA campaign. She was she was firmly against that, but sympathetic to their political perspective and, and able to give a sense of where they were coming from and, and the communities that they were coming from. Um, and she wrote in 1993, just weeks before the 
the Warrington bombing about this escalating bombing campaign that the provosts were were carrying out and she said it's only a matter of time before one of these bombings ends in disaster um, because there have already been a number of near misses and points where if, if something had gone slightly wrong it would have been disaster and um, and Warrington wasn't even as bad as as, as something that um, Mary Holland was, was anticipating. I think she was anticipating something that would have killed 15 or 20 people. So clearly that that tactic of the so-called uh, blockbuster bombs in, in the heart of London, that wasn't going to force the withdrawal either. I think they had to, and this is something that they probably did gradually come to terms with, recognise that the parallels that the provosts like to draw with other anti-colonial movements in, in other parts of the British Empire, in places like Aden, in Kenya, in in Cyprus. It didn't apply because the North was so close to Britain itself and because it was actually part of the UK state. It was considered an integral part of the, of the UK state. It wasn't the same as a colony on the other side of the world. You know, the, the war that happened in Aden uh, in, the, in the 1960s, most people in Britain didn't really know that was happening. Um, and Kieran Conway writes about this in his memoir of, of his time in the IRA in, in the 70s. He says that they were counting down to the point where the number of soldiers they had killed would match the number um, that had been killed in Aden. And they thought that would be the tipping point when the will of the British political class to stay in the north would be broken. But as we know, that proved to be uh, completely mistaken because you're dealing with a very different um, proposition. And, and also the the point about what might follow if the British state was to withdraw, it's not that there was any great compassion on their part that they feared there might be sectarian civil war or that there might be chaos or or, or anything of that kind. Um, as, as, as we know, the people who run the British state are not especially squeamish or, or compassionate as, as we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan and many other places. But whatever happened in the North, they would have to deal with the backlash from that themselves just as much as if they retained it as part of their national territory. There may have been you know, a kind of ill-concealed desire on the part of many British politicians and civil servants to tow the North out to the middle of the North Atlantic and, and dump, it, dump it underwater, but that was never going to be an option. So whatever policy they followed had to take account of that. Um, okay, um, come here. I'm, I'm under pressure from our um, podcast editors who want this not to be um, <laughs> as long as an audiobook to um, end it. Um, there's loads and loads of parts of the book that I actually would like to to talk to you about, including Sinn Féin today, the pragmatism of the Adams leadership and so on. Um, but um, maybe we can have you on in future. Maybe, maybe we don't deal with the book, but maybe we deal with the North more generally or politics in Ireland. We should definitely have you back. And obviously the best way for people to, you know, learn about all this stuff that I'm not talking about is to go and buy the book, which you can buy on probably versobooks.com is the best place to buy it, is it? Yeah, Verso are, uh, they're great for sales. Keep an eye out. They're, they're having recurrent sales, so they are great for sales. Yeah, if you pay full price for a Verso book, you're you're getting scammed. <laughs> um, and um, you have a podcast as well. Do you want to plug your your podcast, or you host a podcast? Yeah, I host a podcast for Jacobin called Long Reads, um, which is trying to do the same thing for for our podcasts that those long read features you get in in newspapers do for print journalism so picking out political topics or individual political thinkers and looking at them in a bit more detail um some of the ones that we've had so far looking at the Solidarność movement in Poland looking at people like Eric Fromm and Albert Camus and 
the next couple of ones that we're going to be doing are about the history of the left in Japan and Marxism in Japan and one about Franz Fanon, the revolutionary uh, from Martinique and Algeria. So if you're interested in any of those topics, do listen in. Interesting. Okay, I might, I'll have to listen to at least one of them. Um, thanks a million, Dan, for uh, joining us. I really appreciate it and I highly recommend the book. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Okay, so thanks a million for listening, everyone. More can be found in the episode description on this topic, along with our Patreon for anyone who wants to chip in. Thanks a million. See you next time. Thank you.